What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. At some point, I couldn't even have told you rationally why I needed to get out. But I knew I cannot do it anymore. They took my kids from me. I don't care about Scientology. Do Scientology, you know, if they want to do it. I just want to be their mom. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. There is no shortage of content out there on the subject of Scientology. When we decided to tackle it, we knew the episode would have to focus on people and the lasting effect Scientology has on its members and their families once they leave. Depending on where you go and who you ask, you may hear Scientology referred to as a religion or a cult. It has a reputation for taking advantage of gullible people who are sucked in at a price. The Church of Scientology has been in conflict with governments and police forces of many countries and is widely criticized. It was founded in the 1950s on a set of psychological principles created by science fiction author Ron Hubbard. Controversy over the years includes allegations of criminal behavior by members, harassment of people perceived as enemies, the death of Scientologist Lisa McPherson while under the church's care, and attempts to force search engines to censor information which criticize the church. Trying to control the flow of information has become an increasingly bigger problem for the church since the 90s as the internet has grown. Many lawsuits were filed and dismissed as they went after anybody they could find who was responsible for the spread of criticism and Scientology-related documents online. With today's media landscape, keeping people quiet hasn't gotten any easier. More and more people have left Scientology and spoken out about its negative effects, despite the church's repeated attempts to shut them up. While celebrities like Tom Cruise and John Travolta are vocal supporters of the church to this day, Others, such as Leah Remini, split from the organization. Leah Remini is an actress, best known for her role on the CBS comedy series The King of Queens, which ran from 1998 to 2007. Once a Scientologist, Leah is now an anti-Scientology activist. Two years after leaving the organization, she released a memoir about her experience with Scientology. And that was eventually followed by her award-winning series on A&E, Leah Remini, Scientology and the Aftermath. Whether it's the shocking and crazy stories, celebrity involvement, or simple curiosity, something continues to drive pop culture's obsession with Scientology. And today, we'll share the stories of four people who escaped the church and are now speaking out. Our first guest says she found her calling in life the hard way. Lori Hodgson is fighting to get her children back because of Scientology's disconnection policy, which forces the severance of all ties between a Scientologist and anybody deemed to be antagonistic towards the church. In Lori's new book, A Mother's Heartbreak, How Scientology Destroyed My Family, she explains how her two adult children have been convinced by the church to cut her out of their lives. 
Lori raised her kids as Scientologists, but everything changed when the church and her ex-husband wanted their daughter to drop out of school and join the Sea Org, Scientology's religious order. I had a knee replacement that went bad, and six months later, I went back in to have it re- taken out and had it redone, and my daughter said goodbye to me right after I got out uh, in the recovery room. And, my, and they sent my daughter in, and she said, um, she was 18, my son was in the Sea Org. I was already really upset about him. And then she comes in to say goodbye to me that she's joining the Sea Org um, the next day and that she's getting married. And I'm in the hospital, and I went into uh, shock and almost died. And my dad had to run and get the response team to save my life. So you see why I fight? I have a second chance. This is a clip from 2016, aired by ABC on their show 2020. She came home the next day and said she wants to drop out of school, dedicate her life to Scientology. Three years later, her son joined the Sea Org as well. Fed up, Hodgson quit Scientology in 2010 and started speaking out against the church. As of right now, both of her children refuse to speak to her. The church provided ABC News with video statements from both of Hodgson's children saying they have voluntarily chosen to not speak to their mother. She keeps going to the media and putting our personal information in our life for the world to see with, you know, false information. I think it is more important for her to have this vendetta against my church than to have a relationship with me. You can tell they look nervous. I mean, if you really look at them, you can tell they're reading a script and see no one that I know of has had Scientology has put their kids on except mine. They, they really do not want my story out there. They want to shut me up and guess what? It worked. So they won for a year and a half. And uh, I've decided I got to continue speaking out. I got severely depressed overseeing the, that, but I got it worse. The producer sent me the full audio of my kids. They only picked that small part to show I read it all it crushed me my son said that why can't my mom be a normal mom and reach out to me it's such lies Carla I reach out to them all the time I try to call they change their numbers I try to go to Texas they have PIs follow me they warn my kids not to go outside Uh, my son runs from me I email him I send them presents it's such lies that they, I know they're lying because I know I'm doing the opposite. And my daughter says that I have a vendetta against the church more than her. The thing I have a vendetta against is they took my kids from me. That That's when I'm, a, that, I, I don't care about Scientology. Do Scientology, you know, if they want to do it. I just want to be their mom. And that's what I keep telling the world. I just, but to be their mom, I have to do these crazy steps. They're called A to E. What it entails is that I have to go back into Scientology and I have to say I've lied about everything, which I can't do. Like my son says, I'm lying. I, I confronted him on my blog and said, son, if I'm lying, please call me. Let's discuss what I'm lying about. If you think I'm lying, I'd love to hear what you think I'm lying about. I, I just try to stay positive that one day I'll have my kids back. But how many other moms and dads do you think are being blackmailed the same way? How many other people Thousands. do you think are doing Thousands. those 200 steps to see their kids? They're not doing the steps because the steps are so insane. They're, it's, it's not a gray area. It's their way or no way. So I wrote them back and said, I can't do this because I have gone back to my baptized religion, which is Lutheran. 
and I'm not active with it. I just, I'm not a Scientologist anymore. And I go, so I just want to be their mom. And they have another policy called good roads, good weather. It's all confusing to you because it's all this lingo with Scientology. But what that entails is what I did with my dad. So when I was 13 and I got in Scientology, my dad was against it. He would give me articles to read. As a Scientologist, you can't read them. You have to bring them in and, 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 and talk with someone there. And they brainwash you and say, that's all lies. You're not allowed to read it. And if you want to keep your relationship with your dad, you have to get him to stop doing that. It's called Good Roads, Good Weather. And I was able to do that with my dad. So I wrote the International Justice Chief just two weeks ago that I'm willing to do that with my kids. I don't, I just want to be their mom. We won't talk about Scientology or my religion. And they won't get back to me because I won't agree to do their steps. I think the world needs to know that, don't you? It sounds very similar when I speak with moms of kids that are caught in human trafficking. My son was human trafficked. The FBI came down and interviewed me on, on my son. He, he was in that C organization at 15, okay? I mean, my story is, is, is awful. They pounded me for six months, and I finally agreed because I knew I'd lose them to disconnection anyway. So when he was there, they promised me he'd have education. He never did have a schooling. They promised me I could talk to him. I only got to talk to him like five times in six months. He cried every night for me. They wouldn't let him call me. When he wanted to leave, they took him off the base with a security guard for two weeks. And then they made him sign a $3 million gag order to never discuss what happened when he was there. When I heard that, I resigned from Scientology. What does the FBI say to that? I mean, can they not... Get, him, get in they, there on human rights? They have my story. I have a file. My case is not closed and it's not open. The FBI is very secretive. I, I, I don't get much information. All I know is they came to my office in San Jose. They interviewed. They went to see my son first because he was a minor at that time. He was 16. And he worked for his father. And I told my agents, I said, they're going to know you're coming. They tracked. Every time I get close to my kids, they know. He wasn't at work. I go, I told you, Scientology tracks everyone who tries to get close to my kids. So they weren't able to interview my son. They hid him. The community of people who chose to leave Scientology is tight-knit and supportive. Lori tells us now about her relationship with Leah Remini, the fearless anti-Scientology activist we mentioned earlier with an award-winning anti-Scientology show on A&E. I I talked to her on the phone. She uh, supports me. Um, I was going to be on her show the first season, but I was contracted with another show on A&E, but I didn't go through with the contract, and she thought I was because I just didn't feel good about that other show. And I wanted to go with Leah, and by the time she got a hold of of me, she already had everybody lined up. I was getting ready to go to L.A. the next week to be on her show. She's really challenging them right now, right? I mean, if I were in their shoes right now, I'd be thinking, oh, it's coming down. Because even Tony Ortega said that the FBI is really starting to close in. Yes. And I don't know anything about, they're really tight-lipped. I mean, all I know is I I get harassed and followed um, a lot when I go near Texas and in San Jose when I first started speaking out. 
and I have um, law enforcement, you know, the human trafficking sergeant in San Jose that I can get a hold of. And I have the, um, the chief here in Lakeport. But the FBI said always report to them if they're, if they're fault. They, they don't physically hurt you. They play mind games. By putting my kids on television, that was a big one. Do you think that any of senior government is interested in shutting this down? I hope so. I have had my dad write write them. Uh, I shared my story with Trump, but there's no way to really get through to him through Instagram and different things like that. But you can't directly get through to these people. You know, it's real. I'm going to share my book with them somehow. Get get it to him. But I would love the government to step in. You know, when I tell officers my story, they look at me like I'm some kind of like I'm making this up. I go, call LA. Here's the number for my agent. And they're like, you were telling the truth. I go, why would I lie? (laughs) I go, I'm not going to lie. This is about my kids. I mean, you know, then they believe me. But I have to always say, I have a file with the FBI. It's It's not a closed case. I don't know what they're doing with it, but this is what happened. But Leah Remini is, um, I was at a wine event at, at Brassville. We were at a sit down dinner and I was sitting next to the son of the owner. And it, his wife said, so what do you do? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm getting ready to publish my book. And she's all, what's the name of it? And I'm at a big table, like eight people, right? And they're all listening. And I go, oh, it's complicated. She said, is that the name? I said, no, it's just complicated. Maybe we could talk another time. She goes, no, I want to know. I go, it's called a mother's heartbreak. And I pause and I said, how Scientology destroyed my family. Her eyes got huge. She Googled my name and saw I was on pages and pages on the internet. And then she said, "Um, I watched that show, that Leah show. And then everybody at the table said, we all watched that show. See how it's so different now. Everybody knows about Scientology and what they do because of Leah. She's my hero. She, She gives me strength. You ask me what helps give me strength, Leah Remini. Because that lady is so strong. She gives me the strength. Stand Up Speak Up will continue in just a moment. But first, Carla is here, the co-founder of Stand Up Speak Up Apparel, to tell us a bit about some new shirts that were inspired by this very episode. One of them is Don't Gaslight. And that's exactly what Scientology does. So if you say to Scientology, I believe that Scientology doesn't have my best interests at heart, they would turn around and say, Actually, it's you that don't have your best interests at heart. It's you that continually self-sabotage yourself. You know, so everything can be flipped. And abusers get really good at gaslighting. The other thing is healing is possible. Um, Because these people have healed. And it was a horrible, long process. You heard their stories, what it was like to leave Scientology. And all of them had a very similar situation of having nothing, not knowing anyone, and having to rebuild their life. And I feel like healing is possible was something that kept coming to me as I was listening to their stories. Sales from Stand Up Speak Up Apparel help us to make this podcast. So we'd love if you would check out the store at standupspeakupapparel.com. From the perspective of most people, or really anybody who's not a Scientologist, it's hard to understand why anybody would join the church, what would be going through their mind. Scientology has a number of recruitment methods and are known for preying upon the curiosity, weakness, and good nature of others. 
In Sam Domingo's story, you get an idea of just how easy it is for someone to fall into Scientology. Sam was 21, finishing college and looking for meaning in life. In 1988, she traveled to Amsterdam, seeking adventure, and that's where she met a man who introduced her to Scientology. Right away, she knew she had found answers to the questions she'd been asking all her life. She found truth and purpose. She fell in love with Scientology and the man who introduced her to it. Sam was extremely happy, but that wouldn't last long. In 1989, she and the man joined the Sea Organization, also known as Sea Org. This, according to the Church of Scientology, is a fraternal religious order comprised of the church's most dedicated members. Others have described it as a paramilitary organization and as a private naval force. Some former members say it's marked by intensive surveillance and lack of freedom. The pair had planned to become married before joining, since there were strict rules against unmarried members living together. They ended up only getting engaged and then proceeded to sign up. During her time in Scientology, Sam would eventually meet and marry Placido Domingo Jr., son of famous Spanish conductor and tenor Placido Domingo. Because Placido Jr. was so highly regarded, Sam got a glimpse of celebrity life in Scientology, but she ended up leaving and received help from her father-in-law to do so. He hoped his son would leave as well, but he didn't at that time. Sam left first and her now ex-husband Placido Jr. did eventually leave. Now, as Sam explained in an open letter from 2010 declaring her independence from Scientology, within a few months after joining Sea Org, life became miserable. You are immortal beings, you are capable of anything, you know, there are no excuses. You're capable of anything and you do whatever job is assigned to you. And the wage was about £20 a week when I was in the UK. You live in the Sea Org building or campus? You lived in communal building, and every place I worked at, the communal building was basically just horrifically degraded, substandard, sort of, you know, metal, rusty metal bunks, everybody shoved into one room, um, barely any money, washing your clothes in the bathtub, eating beans and rice. I mean, the living conditions were horrific. And did any of that kind of make you go, hmm, this isn't really what I had in mind? Oh, absolutely, from day one. But you know, it, it's it's sort of this again. It's 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 really hard to when you come outside and you look back in. You you, you it's hard to even fathom that you went there in your own head. But you you know, you, it was all justified as sort of everybody's here on the same terms, and if the living conditions are bad, it's up to us to make it better, and we're all in this together. It's, it's it's like, you know, space opera movie type stuff where the suffering even becomes a heroic gesture of your own personal self-sacrifice to save the planet. And, and ultimately, that's what, the, as you get prepared to accept more and more of Hubbard's crazy science fiction rubbish, you know, you're indoctrinated into the belief that um, you're part of the Galactic Confederation and... And, you know, OT3, the big secret that you, you reach that you, is revealed on OT3, there are different levels of operating base, and it's called OT levels. These are the secret, super secret levels. Um, but it's revealed that there was this evil emperor, Zenu, who rounded up. Planets were overpopulated, and he basically rounded everybody up and blew them up in volcanoes, 
on Earth and, and they were trapped by, and the way to solve the overpopulation was these, they call, he called them Thetans, but these spiritual beings were packaged up together and sort of consolidated into one body. So each person has, is made up of all these Thetans that are like stuck in this, stuck to him and <laughs> I know, like, I mean, when you're explaining it, it's kind of like, oh gosh, it's so out there, but it's no different than some of the other preaching you hear, like Moses separating the sea. And I mean, religions yeah. are based on, on crazy stories, you know, stories yeah. that, that you can't even think could be believable, but that's the whole. Yeah. I mean, you're not even given the whole story in the sea of, you're just kind of given enough to be, you know, you're told that this is a, Earth is a prison planet and you were put here and we're all here to sort of free up and psychiatry and, and the medical in, industry are like a conspiracy with the government to keep everybody trapped and Scientologists are here to give people the truth and set them free. So, and, and you, you're gradually bought into this belief that you're part of Hubbard's team, you're part of this galactic confederate that comes back lifetime after lifetime and, you, and you're here you know, it was sort of stated that you would wind up a part of, you know, join, rejoining this group of all your fellow sea organization members on this, that have been on this quest for hundreds of thousands of years to free mankind, and we're still doing it. And then when you sign a sea organization, the sea organization is, is the organization that you sign a billion-year contract to come back lifetime after lifetime on this mission to free people from this free people on the earth from this trap. And then once the people on earth are, are freed, you go off to target too. Hubbard said when he died, or when he dropped his body, as, as he called it, we were going to go off and to another planet, target two, and clear that planet. So that was the whole story of, of being in the Sea Org and what we were there to do and why we signed a billion-year contract to do that. And at the time, it all made sense. <laughs> I mean, I ran away twice. My head was, and then, you know, as I was getting confused, but I was also, as part of that confusion, shuffled off to get ethics, what they called ethics handlings, and, you know, excuses were found that my parents were against Scientology, so they were interrogating me, and that's what was upsetting me, really, and um, I could disconnect from my parents, so everything got very, your head actually just starts, at some point, to just in. And then they're getting you at the same time that they're, they're pulling you into processing for auditing. So they call it auditing counseling. And you're, you're sort of going on, you get delving into past lives where maybe you had doubts about being in this organization on this, when you're on a spaceship and you were treasonous and ran away, you know, and it just, you, your head starts to explode with the insanity of it after a while. And then you can't leave. You can't just walk out because there is security, you know. Did you break off the the relationship? Um, event, eventually, he was sent 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 to Africa on some mission to sort out the organizations in Africa, and and he hooked up with another sea organization member, and they both were declared suppressive and excommunicated and thrown out. There's nothing good about Scientology. There's no happy story to tell you about how things resolved and worked out other than I left and I took my three kids out and somehow I didn't lose my kids, you know, because a lot of people have lost their kids and 
and I I got out alive. I got my kids out alive, and I still have them. I haven't lost them to disconnect. You know, so many people, their kids join the SEA organization, and, and they realize too late that things are, are not quite right. I realized early enough to get my kids out. And when you left, what was your big fear when you left? I mean, financially, because you'd been kind of... Um, or I guess you didn't care about the the Scientology financially because no. it was costing you money more. No, it wasn't going to cost me anything because I left. I mean, it cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to get these up through these OT levels. Um, that didn't bother me. What scared me the most was my husband was still in at that point. And I actually had to leave in secret. I left in the middle of the night. I packed the three kids in the car. I, I canceled my credit cards. I only used cash. And I ran away and hid because my ex-husband was still in and they were trying to track me down and find me and follow me and get me to go back in. My head was really not in a good place, obviously, especially with my husband still being in and trying to track me down for them. And did you, did you say anything to him ever? Like I'm leaving. Do you want to leave with me? Yeah, I did. But he, he was sort of, no, let's go, let's go to the church. Let's sort this out. And at that point I was, I'd actually just got a glimpse of how crazy they were because um, there were a lot of defections happening at the time. And another one of another of the sort of key points where I actually got quite scared was seeing what they were doing to the people who had left. I mean, some of these were my friends, and I saw they were it was character assassinations and discrediting and trying to destroy them. And I, it was it got very bizarre for me because these were my friends. You know, and I was being told, you know, they're suppressive people, they're bad, they're evil. And it just got, I think there were so many defections at that point and so many people I knew had left that it just didn't ring true anymore. Um, and that got very scary. That got, that got, I suddenly saw how sort of mafia, like this whole situation was the way it was set up. And I warned, you know, I called my father-in-law and I said, I'm leaving and I said, you, you're, you know, your son is still in, but I, I, I got to get, I got to get away. I've got to get to England. I've got to take my kids. Will you help me? And he said, absolutely. And then this bit makes me almost want to cry. He said, what do I do about my son? You know? And I said, I don't know. I said, I can't get him out. Um, you know, we were getting a divorce. He said, I can't get him out. I said, the only thing, the only advice I can give you is, you know, to, try and get him to spend more time with you away from the church. And I just hope that you can get him out, but I can't, you know, I got to get the kids out. I've got to keep the kids safe and he, he doesn't want to leave. So, and then, you know, obviously things got a lot worse because I did, I brought my kids to England. And as I said, I tried to keep good with the church and I put them into a Scientology school. And then I just started really, because you're not allowed to research the bad stuff, I started getting, once I was away from them, I started going on the internet, reading the stories, reading the, you know, things like Victoria had lost her son, Noah Lottick, the suicide, a lot of people who died, committed suicide, Lisa McPherson, who died in the care, and I was just horrified. And I, at that point, I decided I had to say something about it. And up until then, I'd been very quiet. And, and, I, and like I said to you earlier, that was the point where I was told, stay quiet, nothing will happen to you. And I was sort of like, well, what do they want me to stay quiet about? And as I started to get a bigger picture of how bad it was, 
I decided I had to say something. So I started, you know, I, I did an article with the Sun newspaper and I started to speak out. And at that point, my ex-husband was told, you get her under control or you're going to be excommunicated. And he was ordered to disconnect from me, have nothing to do with me. Um, the church tried to get to my father-in-law and he actually came to see me and he said, you know, I got this text from the president of the church saying she wants to talk to me. And I said, oh, you did? And he said, he says, I know what they want. He says, they want me, they want to tell me how bad you are, don't they? And I said, yeah. And he said, I understand. I know, I know what they're doing. So they do, you know, so they make you feel safe and protected yeah, at the beginning when we're all in this together and everybody has the same beliefs and, and, you know, they do catch people when they're young and, and you, you just get caught up in this whole, it's a lot more exciting than flipping burgers at McDonald's or, you know, going to an office job or it seems like it is to a young person, you know, now on this mission to save the planet, you know, psychiatry is evil. It's a, it's a false science. It's drawing everybody into a trap. The medical industry is evil and all the bad things in the world, the war, wars and things are explained away and, and Scientology is going to make it okay. And it's a, a general process of brainwashing where you don't have access to the media or the news. You don't, you know, anyone that you know who would disagree with it, you, you're encouraged to cut them off. I mean, I was encouraged to disconnect from my parents because what you're actually brainwashed into believing is that Scientology is so good, you know, it's so beneficial to mankind that anybody who would be against it is being influenced by bad people and psychiatry, what they call suppressive people. And only suppressive people would want Scientology to fail because they want society to continue to be controlled and manipulated by the bad people. Do you think that he sought you out? I mean, he was recruiting me from day one. He was, I mean, you know, we, we met after work. He sat me down and started getting into the whole reincarnation to sell me on the idea of reincarnation. And from there, he was actually trained in Scientology techniques. So every night he would, you know, take me through some Scientology pro auditing. It was called Dianetic Auditing and take me into these past lives where I eventually discovered, you know, I was part of that team and, and it was completely on my purpose line to help society. I mean, it sounds pretty ideal. Like I get why that could be captivating and somebody saying like, you come to me and your problems are going to go away just by you telling the universe what your problem is. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it's magic. You know, this is a magic cure. This is the big secret. And then, you know, you, you always have the carrot of something, what they would call the OT levels, which was, Dianetics was, and, and basic Scientology was sort of handling your own problems. Um, and then Dianetics was dealing with your own aberrations. But then you had these secret OT levels where you were supposed to become so um, powerful and, and, you know, you've got rid of all your own personal stuff that you can just magically solve things. You can make people well. You know, I would hear stories from these OTs that, you know, their daughter was sick and they were away on holiday and, and they, they just got a picture of their daughter in their head and, you know, their daughter got better through what they were doing or what they were postulating. The postulate is like you stating a truth and then it will be true. 
Do you think that the OT levels actually believed that? They absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, um, your, the OTs themselves believed it, and they would promote these miracles. I mean, some of them were were ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I drove to work and all the traffic lights were green because I decided they were going to be green the whole way. But then you, you would hear these miraculous stories about, you know, how they cured people or made people better or, you know, and you would go to Scientology events and you would just get this piped information about how much good Scientology was doing in the world and volunteer ministers were being sent here, there and everywhere and drugs, drug addicts were being cured and criminals were being cured and isn't Scientology amazing? And you're actually, you know, I, I talk about this fake, this synthetic world, it's very much like that for Scientologists where they are cut off from any critical information and told that that's bad, you know, and they live in this bubble, this idealistic utopian bubble. Our next guest is Jenna Miscavige. If you're at all familiar with Scientology, that last name might sound familiar. That's because Jenna is the niece of David Miscavige, the leader of the Church of Scientology. As if leaving Scientology wasn't hard enough, imagine having to do it when your uncle is their leader. Jenna was a third-generation Scientologist but left the church in 2005 and has been an outspoken critic ever since. She now runs the website xscientologykids.com along with two other women. How did you even know to get out? I mean, you had been in that environment for so long. Like, the fact you even left is is huge like how did you even know that was the right thing to do it's like impossible to know at that time but i think at some point it just becomes like there's so much abuse and so much bad things going on that literally my physical instincts take over and they're like we we can't put up with this anymore this like lack of sleep this mind messing with constantly and at some point i couldn't even have told you rationally why i needed to get out but i knew that my body or whatever you call it i I cannot do it anymore even if i thought i should have it just couldn't do it anymore i know that in the scientology culture they're not supportive of of pharmaceuticals for mental health and and therapy but when you left you must have had so many range of emotions did you feel guilty seeking out therapy or seeking out ways to help you? I think that I didn't seek those things out at first. I mean, I think that when I came out, I had to prioritize. Like I was in no position to be able to be doing that because I didn't have a place to live. And well, I mean, we stayed with my husband's parents, but I was like all of a sudden immersed with talking to all these people that I we called wogs before. So I was like, honestly, on survival mode. How do I get money in my pocket or even how to get from one place to another and talk to normal people and and kind of how to be normal. That wasn't something that I feel like was on my radar at that time. And, um, that, um, I, I could have done cause it was just, it was just basic survival. But how did you cope with that anxiety? Like, I can't even imagine what it would have felt like to all mm-hmm. of a sudden be out in a whole new world and new experiences and having to learn how to like re-socialize almost. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was hard. But I think that my whole life I'm used to doing 
hard things that well I, that I didn't even necessarily know were hard. They were just normal. Even though it was very difficult, that was the normal for me. I also went from working seven days a week to now having weekends off to now being able to go home at like six o'clock and like where we would work until midnight every night, sometimes through the night. So in some ways it was like insane how difficult it was when I first left. I mean, we were used to wearing uniforms and now I like had to have clothes for every day and it was like, just like, but at the same time, it was a lot easier than like, say, being yelled at all the time or like not getting any time off and being able to like, say, watch a movie or something. So I don't think I really understood it to the degree until the documentary started to come out, because I think until that it was kind of just nobody really knew. Right. It wasn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like there's a period of time when it was first coming out where anytime you told someone your story that in no matter how many people did it, it wound up as like a 30 second clip about with Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise's name, like somehow fitting in there. So I think that like there were lots of people for a long time wanting to come forward and were, but it was just a matter of what was newsworthy to whoever or not, you know? When you were growing up, do you have memories of um, people doing really kind things to you that you think supported your whole idea of valuing kindness as a priority or empathy as a priority? A lot of people were really nice to me. Like, for example, like when we would go to where my parents worked, everyone would be nice to me, but I didn't know if they were just like, you know, being that way because of my uncle and who he was. Um, but I think that, um, and maybe they were, maybe they weren't, they probably were, but whatever, they were still nice to me and they weren't like, I don't know, it wasn't being used to cover something up bad. They were just being nice for their own benefit or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, I think that in some ways how we grew up at the ranch, like, I noticed like from a young age, like I guess I wasn't like unpopular in our school because probably because of my name, but I would notice like my friends would be like, oh, there's that girl and she's just like ugly or whatever. And I just remember not understanding like why it mattered to them or why they would choose to be mean to them, like because that person was perfectly nice. I understand being mean to someone who's not nice to you. So I'm not like some kind of perfect angel. Like I'm in agreement with that, but somebody who's done nothing to you and is a nice person. I had, I have struggled with that since I was little, like what to do. Like, why are my friends being mean to this person when they're perfectly nice? And I kind of like them. And, um, yeah. So I feel like the whole time that I was in the church, even though I was in a sort of, I wasn't in a position of authority, but I was always in like the higher ups because I guess my family would put me there because how it reflected on them. I was always nice to other people. I, I didn't feel like I was better than them. I don't know why anyone. And I think it's that thing. Once you get that otherness thing or you think you're different or better than or separate than that's when you, I don't know, people start to like almost like see people as a threat rather than just seeing them as a friend. How was it to meet your husband? How did that whole romance happen? Do they, um, is it like an arranged marriage type thing within Scientology? Like, 
or you're free to love whoever you want. How does that work? Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Um, well, it's not an arranged marriage, but like, so, and I'm talking about like the Sea Org, which is where if you work for Scientology, um, so basically like there are different hierarchies within it. There's like organizations, there's like top, middle, down. And so like when I was there, like you're only allowed to marry people like within your same organization or like one lower or something They they changed the rules. Like it used to be, you could marry anybody, but then it was only within your same organization or your same base that you're at. Um, so no, I mean, my husband, I just met him when I was there and, um, I liked him, but they do like, like background checks and go through all the confessions that they've done to make sure they haven't done anything too bad that would look bad on the family or him. And he got like, we both got lots of like security checks. Like, what are your intentions? Why are you marrying her? All that sort of thing. But it was like my choice to date that person or to marry that person. It wasn't like someone was found for me. And do they, when you get married in Scientology, is it a legal marriage that's seen legally with the United States or is it a Scientology marriage? How does that work? Um, Well, we went to the courthouse, so it is a legal marriage. And then they, like just a minister has to sign off on it. And so like Scientology is recognized as a religion. So once a Scientology minister signs off that paper, then it is a fully legal marriage. And you guys decided to leave together, but it was, you mentioned that it was hard Mm -hmm. and it was back and forth with each other a lot. Yeah, we decided to leave together, but then the church were secretly pulling aside my husband and trying to convince him to stay and um, me and like ditch me and like just sort of like pretty much to screw me over. And so, you know, I didn't know any of that was happening. Um, So we almost wound up, I almost wound up leaving without him. But in the end, he finally told me and we wound up leaving together. Why do you think it was harder for him? Why was he hesitating, do you think? I think a few reasons. One is that his family was still in Scientology. um, So you know, he was threatened with not being able to speak with them. And I think that his family meant more to him than my family because he had grown up in a sort of normal life with them. Where to me, where for me, the idea of leaving my family was like, see you later. I barely even know you guys. So it had a lot more, um, you know, that, that threat had a lot more power to him than it would have for me. And um, I think that um, I think that Dallas is more of a follower and more wants to do what is easy, um, and um, just because he had an easier life. And I think that I think in the end he made the right choice 
to his credit, you know, because he couldn't live with the alternative. But I think that um, they definitely like targeted him because they knew that he would he was easier to get to. I think also I had an added benefit of even though my uncle was who he was and, you know, Mike Rinder was who he was as important as they were. I grew up knowing both of them and knowing their families and knowing that they are human, that they aren't some kind of God. Um, and like, I was more able to like, you know, so to me, they were just people, although they were important, it wasn't the same, like, you know, the same sort of thing as, as Dallas may have seen it. And how do you, did you have to like, figure out how to be a, a married couple on the outside like because that would have been a whole new like it almost be like dating again yeah like, did you totally, feel like it was yeah. like a whole new relationship yeah well I feel like um you know when you're in of course you have the same goals in mind and you're like both like little cult minions so of course you have the same like plans in life and then get out and then it's like relearning the whole world. And then of course his parents were like not happy that we had left. And so, and the church was like trying to spy on us and it was like so much pressure. So, and, and at first he like wanted to stay as a Scientologist, which understandably most people do. Um, so it was definitely hard times at first, very hard. But I think that like with everything we'd been through together um, and everything we'd seen, it's sort of like, you know, I think that held us together, um, like just our loyalty to one another and, and the fact that we were able to understand each other in a way that probably no one else could. Um, and I kind of think, I mean, I guess that's not how it is with every marriage, but <laughs> there's always wrenches being thrown in from everywhere. Then like children a few years later throws a wrench in everyone's marriage, I think. But I think that because we have that strong foundation and that we, um, you know, are similar in many ways and, or at least complementary, that the fact that we're able to come through it and still love each other and still stay together is, is a good thing. While Jenna's marriage turned out with a positive ending, others do not. Melissa Paris was born into Scientology. Her whole family were Scientologists. In 1996, she was just 16 years old and newly married to a man she says she was forced to marry. Despite her husband coming from a wealthy family, she had no better experience in Scientology for it, being forced to do long hours of unpaid labor. But Melissa's husband did grant her the wish of flying to his ship for their honeymoon. Little did he know, Melissa had an ulterior motive. Her sister had just been forced aboard that ship and therefore they were able to see each other for the first time in two years. The marriage didn't last long and ended when Melissa left her husband and the Sea Org, but it would be another 13 years before the two sisters reunited again. It's 1979, and then at what age were you able to be in the cadets? I was in the cadet org at four. My brother was two, my sister was six. And what do you do in the cadets? Do, they, do you do regular kid stuff or what do you do? No, it's like the it's like the Navy, it's like the Sea Org, but for kids. Elon Hubbard doesn't consider and didn't consider. Well, he doesn't now; he's dead. But he didn't consider children to be children. Yeah, we were adults in little kids' bodies, so we got treated like that. So we would get up, we'd have posts, we'd 
you know, be lined up at muster and we'd all have what we were and we'd salute and yes, sir, no, sir, and all that kind of stuff. Like we, we weren't kids. So what would happen if you misbehaved? Um, I mean, it all depends. I, the governess or cadet coordinators, whoever was in charge of us was in charge of us. Like your parents pretty much give up their rights and they would discipline you however they saw fit, which could be getting sucker punched in the face, thrown down a flight of stones head first, um, no food. I mean, it just all depends. It, it all depends. Do, do you think which that... Which governess you had. Like, out of... What was your governess like? Mine was horrible. I had pretty bad ones. We had a, a guy, when I first got there, that was molesting the little babies and the toddlers. His name was Bo. And the older cadets saw him doing it, and they had reported it, and he ended up getting kicked out of the sphere, but they never reported him. And then when I was a little bit older, I think around nine, I was the cadet that was thrown down the flight of stairs head first. And I was punched in the face by Dominique and knocked out. Like it just, you basically in the cadet or the people that looked after us were the field members that were always in trouble. Like the cadet was like their last chance. So we, yeah, we got some pretty bad ones. And did you know at the time that that was wrong, their behavior? Like, did you know that it wasn't your fault for what was happening? No. And that, that's the thing is, I think it's so hard for people to understand that have never been in that kind of situation. Just the mindset that we had, you know, like this is all that I knew. This is how I was raised. And so, and then I went to Greenfield school, which was, which is a school to this day that's based on Scientology study principles. So the only reason I went there was because my stepfather had money and that had been part of the divorce. So my sister, my brother and I went there, but I mean, we were the dirty Stolen's kids. We were always had lice. We didn't have enough to eat. We were dirty. Like it just, you know, just, we were never children. So did we know any better? No. Did we always want to have what our friends at school had, like that normal life? Yes. Did but, you, could you ever tell but, anyone, or yeah. did you keep all this secret? Um, we kept it secret. In Scientology, if you report another Scientologist for anything kind of like outside of Scientology, then it, that's a high crime. You can get declared a suppressive person. And, I mean, I know we were us cadets were pretty bad. Like we were, we were pretty bad. So I remember one time we tried to call what would be CPS in England and they ripped the phone, the one phone off the wall that we had at Stoneland so that we could never try that again. And if you said something to your parents, what would they say? My parents knew. My dad lived with, my dad lived in the same building or he was at Stoneland's. The only time he ever said anything to anybody was when Dominique threw me down the flight of stairs head first. And that's the only time he said anything. But he knew about other times. My mom knew about other times. She tried to get us out a few times, but was told again that, you know, we were in the cadet org, and if she tried to do it again, she would get declared. Like, it's all about control. 
And did you ever have a fantasy of com- somebody coming in and saving you? Yes, we all did. And what would that savior look like at that time in your eyes? I don't even know. I just, I was always a little bit more mouthy, a little bit more curious than most kids. I was always very intuitive, even as a young, young child. So I think I always knew that something was not right, which is why I left earlier than anybody else. Because I left when I was 20. My sister didn't leave till she was 32. Did you stop talking with her for 12 years? She stopped talking to me. Yeah. For 12 years. Yes. But how do you, how, how do, you do that? Like you're 20 years old, your self-esteem's taking a beating, you don't really know what the outside world is like. Where do you even begin on day one? You leave, what's, what do you do day one? Um, well, I got on, but I'm abnormal. So when I left, there was no one out. I was kind of the first. I think there was a couple other people that had left, but I was really one of the first. I got on a bus in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I took a bus all the way to Geneva, Switzerland to find my grandmother and had no idea where she was. And I got off the bus and I was walking up the hill towards where I thought her street was. And she happened to be walking down the street and I saw her. So I was lucky, but I hadn't spoken to her in five, six years because my mom had left. So, you know, I found my, I went to Florida and I moved in with my mom and stepdad and I told him, hey, don't tell me anything bad about Scientology. Let me start researching it. I want to see for myself. And so I just spent two weeks on the internet and I looked up everything. And yeah. What did but you I mean, think I, of that? I, like, like, were you angry? What, what was your emotions at that time? That I, I don't even know. I think that I was, I'd always known something wasn't right. And this was just, this was showing me that, hey, that feeling that you'd always had, your gut feeling was right. But then, you know, a lot of people don't leave, especially back then, because every single person that they know is a Scientologist. Like, I didn't know anybody other than my mom and stepdad. But I I got a job. I started working. I bought my first house when I was 20. But how would you do this? Like, back up. Like, how did you even... I mean, like, you've got no education, so what kind of job? How do you even find a job that... Because I went and got a telemarketing job. I was 19. I got a telemarketing job, and I was really good at it. Like, my work ethic is very different from most teenagers or most people that age because I'd always worked. You know, starting at four years old, I was working. And then when I was in the Sea Org, it's like you're... I mean, I was up one day... one time for six days pretty much I would only sleep on the bus ride home and then the bus ride back to St. Hill because David Miscavige was doing the IS event so that work ethic is ingrained in me so I, I did telemarketing and then you know I met my daughter's dad we bought a house we ended up moving to Texas and you know I got into college by I kind of bullshitted my way into college but I was always, you know, I did a lot of reading when I was a kid. That's all I did. And what do you think are some of the things that happened to you in Scientology that hold you back, that still create fear in you or doubt or 
low self-esteem? Like, how does that carry forward? Um, I think one of the worst things about Scientology, and especially as children, is that whatever happens to you, you pulled it in. Like, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. So if you were sexually abused, that's your fault. What did you do to pull that in? If you were in an accident, what did you do? If you hurt yourself, what did you do? It's always, what did you do? And I think that that's something that it's really hard to break away from and to overcome. But yeah, you, it's not just knowing that it's not your fault what happened. But how do you do that? Like, how do you retrain your brain? Like, how do you reta- retrain your, your thought process? It took me years. And therapy. I had to go to therapy. So what were some of the triggers that you'd be out there and then something like if somebody gave you feedback maybe like on how you could do something? Any kind, oh, any kind of criticism will trigger you, especially as a steward member, like an ex-steward or an ex-cadet because you're so scared to get that when you're in the steward. You're so scared to, you know, like you're not allowed to talk back because that's called backlash. So when somebody sits there and gives you any kind of criticism or even if it's constructive, in the outside world, it's so hard not to get defensive. And, you know, well, no, this is why I'm doing it, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, that's just, that's something. And I think most, 99.9% of XCO members especially will tell you that. Um, I mean, I know that to this day, I still have abandonment issues because, you know, my mom left when I was four. My dad, they all, I mean, my dad and my brothers won't talk to me and it's been 18 years my sister for 12 years. You know, it's hard not to think that that's your fault. When you had your daughter, what was that? What was that like? What kind of emotions came back? Like, and what did you, like, what do you kind of have to catch yourself doing because you were parented so differently? I made, I made a promise to myself when I had Jade that I would never, ever be the kind of parent to her that I had. Like, I would never be like my mother and I would never be like my father. And that's the way that it's been. And I have an amazing, amazing 16-year-old daughter that is, I'm her best friend and her mother. So I have an amazing relationship with her. How do you describe it to her when you say this is what, like, can she understand it? Is she getting to understand it more? Because I have a 16-year-old, too, and, and he's amazing, and I love him to death. But he can't sometimes understand stuff that's going on with uh, me because they, they lack a little bit of empathy because they're so caught up in their own life. Jane is my mini-me, and I had, no, I'm, I mean, she really is. I had made sure that none of this touched her in any way, shape, or form. She never knew anything about it, etc. When my sister got out in, two, um, I think, 2008, yeah, whenever she got out, 2009, 2010, my dad had actually contacted my daughter via Facebook and so was building a relationship with her. And then he took it away. Didn't tell her anything. He just disconnected from my daughter. I didn't know about this. So... I was livid because I would never have allowed him to do that to her. 
Well, her being her went and Googled my name. She was 12. And found a bunch of stuff that had been written about me and sent me a text message saying, hey, I just want you to know that I Googled your name. And I just remember sitting there thinking, oh, F. I don't know if I can curse. Yeah, 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 you can curse. I, I said, oh, fuck. <laughs> um, and then she, and I was like, okay, well, what do you think? And she texted me back. She said, you know, those people were monsters, but this just makes me even more proud to have you as a mother. And, you know, she'll ask me questions, and but she's smart. You know, she's, she's very intuitive and probably too much, too, has too much empathy. But she knows. She knows everything. I've never hidden anything from her since that day. So with your studies with um, criminal psychology, what type of other similarities like, do you study in school and you're like, oh my God, aha. Oh gosh, that's like Scientology. Like, What are your aha moments you have while you're studying? Oh, uh, so I did abnormal psychology. That was one of the first classes that I took. And L. Ron Hubbard when you're in Scientology, he has it where they think that psychiatrists and psychologists and anybody like that are evil. They're criminals. Like they have museums dedicated to anti-psychiatry and stuff like that. So you're not allowed to read anything done by any of these people. I shit you not. I'm sitting there in abnormal psychology. I'm looking at Sigmund Freud stuff about the unconscious mind and, you know, like how something can happen and you like you you put it into your unconscious mind something triggers it i said in the middle of class i was like holy fuck because l ron hubbard stole like word for word his quote unquote technology and it's stolen from like freud pavlov he stole stuff from durkheim from marx So much of his stuff, I would say 90% of his stuff, his technology, his secrets to the universe are stolen. But he wasn't banking on the internet. And now people, and that's why so many people left. Because you can go and you can research and the reactive mind in Scientology is the exact same thing as Freud's unconscious mind. And when you, when you talk about this, let's say to your mom or, you know, cause she got into it early, do you ever say to her, like, how did you ever believe this stuff? Like, did you read this stuff and understand it? Or like, what does a Scientologist say that went into it 20 years ago? Well, my mom, like I said, my mom got as high as you can go. She got to OTA, which is as high as you can go on, on the processing side. And then she was the highest level auditor, but she had known for years, I think, that something wasn't right. And I remember she told me she got to OTA and she completed it and then she got a cold or she got really sick. Afterwards, like, you know, but she's supposed to be able to control the universe. How is she getting sick? So that's, you know, she knew. And I think that's why a lot of people, a lot of old timers have left because they got everywhere and it doesn't work. It's science fiction. And does, did she have to pay for all of that or did she get it free because she was in millions? And was her, no. her, so she actually 
donated all that money for all these courses? She didn't donate. She paid for the courses, not donation. I mean, I guess they call it donations, but no, my stepfather spent millions and my stepfather supposedly committed suicide yet. He committed suicide at the sandcastle and then his body was moved to his house. What did, what did your mom think um, of all that? That's when my mom left because we don't think that it was a suicide because he was going after the church for his money. And what did your stepfather do to be able to spend that kind of money? He actually was a self-made millionaire. He owned, he was from Switzerland and he owned junkyards in Switzerland. And he, yeah. Yeah. And did he, did, did, did the money go to the church when he passed away or how did that work? Like, do they have to donate their savings? There was no money left. He'd literally given everything he had to Scientology and then he'd loaned Scientologists millions and he wasn't allowed to go into the regular court system to sue them for his money back. He was having to go through Scientology. My, my mom put his diary online and it's, he's talking about how he's fighting to get his money back and how much these people owed him. Like he was sick and he couldn't even take care of himself. And how did, like, how did he, what do you think drove him to want to be in there and giving his money to them? And what, what was he after? Like, what was the ultimate, what was he looking for ultimately? Well, I mean, you know, Scientologists think that once they hit like the high OT level, that they're supreme beings. They can control, like they can use tele, they're going to become telepathic. They can move objects. Like they literally do believe this stuff. Did he get as high as your mom? He got OT7. So she got to the very top one, which apparently tells you that the, um, the secret of the universe, right? Like it tells you the meaning of life and everything. Isn't that? Yeah. And, and what, what is the meaning of life? I mean, when you get up there, what do they tell you oh. it is? Hold on. We're going to save a whole bunch of people money, millions <laughs> of dollars. In okay. You guys can thank us later. <laughs> so, cause this was so bad. And when I'm on Twitter, I love putting this stuff on there. Because I'm such an asshole. But basically, so you get all the way to OT8. And you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is going to be huge. Mm -hmm. It's not huge. You literally paid all that money to sit there and have L. Ron Hubbard tell you that you have all these little Satans that are stuck to you. And basically, you're going to get rid of them so you can become you again. I shit you not. You just spent all that money to be told that you are you. And that concludes our episode on just some of the many brave people who managed to escape Scientology and are now outspoken against it. You'll find links to things mentioned in this show, such as Lori Hodgson's book, Jenna Miscavige's website, Leah Remini's TV show, and more at StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. Host Carla Stevens-Tolstoy joins us now for the show wrap-up. 
So you're you're quite interested in Scientology. What was it about all of this that made you decide you would like to do、uh, an episode on it on the podcast? Well, I've been definitely a big follower of Leah Show, but before that, I watched almost every documentary on Scientology, and I think I'm just fascinated with how it makes its money. I mean, they're just so wealthy; they have you know a billion dollars in assets, they have four to five hundred million dollars in cash. I mean, they are just so good at churning out money, and they have no moral code. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. To look at, they are willing and and happy for people to mortgage their houses to pay for levels in order to get more advanced in Scientology. They are willing for people to、um, drain their kids' college funds. I mean, they they literally, I believe, have like no moral code when it comes to getting money off of people and using people as free labor. Yeah, it is quite amazing because if you don't know a whole lot about it, it's just some crazy thing. I, mean, I don't know. Tom Cruise is involved, but then when you take a look at it and you hear all these people talking about the different locations in the world, even that they were, and seeing all these big buildings and all this the stuff that they have, it's amazing. What would you say you think or you've read? Is there end goal? Is there anything to it except just for a few people to get rich? Is there? Is that it? I think that David Miscavige knows、um, that it's all a con, and I've heard that from multiple sources. He knows that there is really no no afterlife, as Ron Hubbard has described. I think that he is consumed with power. I think he shows psychopathic tendencies, and I, and I don't say that lightly. I really believe he he doesn't have any. Um, emotional or, or moral compass, and I think that a lot of the celebrities that are involved. And I got to interview Karen Presley, who was really a very interesting and enlightening interview. And she's written a book called Escaping Scientology. I really recommend it. You know, she worked a lot in the celebrity center, and she worked directly for David Miscavige. And a lot of the celebrities do believe. In all this, this teachings and in all these ways, but the ones that are quite senior know the reality. I don't believe that Tom Cruise believes this. I think they treat him like a god. I think he gets a bunch of slave labor at his disposal. He's got his own kingdom. I, I don't believe that he believes in all their their teachings because their teachings are ridiculous. I mean, they make no sense. Yeah, and、uh, I, I thought about that as well. There has to be something going on, on there because we've heard some of these terrible stories of young people forced to join cadets at a, a very young age, and other stories of forced labor for basically no money. This is not what Tom Cruise is not scrubbing floors. So what what part of Scientology is he seeing? You know, well, I've heard a few stories that you know. So this is an example of one when he got married to Katie Holmes. He.、Um, Used a Scientology chef had come out to the ranch in Montana and done the whole wedding, and they needed to get bigger stoves for the amount of people coming. And so Tom Cruise's people said, "Okay, well, you go buy it and just put it on your credit card." And he's like, "Well, I can't put a credit card." They're like, "Just put it on your personal credit card." It was like sixty thousand dollars, and they never paid him back for that because they literally told him he's lucky that his purchase. 
got to be used for Tom Cruise's wedding. And that's very common that he'll have staff that don't work for any money and they're just lucky to be one of Tom Cruise's staff. I think that he's let it go to his head. Um, I think that those that are, those celebrities that are in Scientology are um, don't want to see the real picture, which I find shocking because there's so many claims of sexual abuse. I mean, we didn't put many in this episode, but I've heard countless, countless of abuse and there was no action taken. Countless stories of just child abuse with physical abuse that nobody deals with. I mean, these kids that grew up in Scientology are traumatized. And the one thing that really made me think was when Lori was talking about her, her kids who won't talk to her anymore. She said, I don't care if they do Scientology. I just want to be their mom. And from that, I thought about, yeah, you know, there are all kinds of different religious beliefs in the world, but why with Scientology, this is the one where you can't talk to anyone and all these horrible things are happening. You can't, you can't even go talk to your mom and be in Scientology because she doesn't believe like that is the part that makes me think, wow, it is just all about money. There's oh, no it's real. Just, it's all about money and just making you feel like without Scientology, you are nobody, you are worthless. And I mean, I would, I would definitely say, and coming from a business background, I would hire any Scientologist that's left Scientology because they are extremely hardworking. I think where you'd have to work on them is for them to start sharing their own opinions, for them to be comfortable um, stepping out of maybe a comfort zone where they're afraid that they might get negative feedback. I mean, they're basically managed through fear. I hope they all go to jail. I hope those the top people, not the ones that are brainwashed, but David Miscavige and his his unit around him that know the reality of what's going on, go to jail. And that was talked about in in our interviews, just uh, the fact that there has to be officials onto this in a way that, you know, it's coming to an end maybe sooner rather than later, as opposed to it just dying out. Like there's so much evidence or stories around there has to, you know, they have to be, why aren't they doing anything? Why isn't it stopped? That's a big question everyone has. Oh, I know. And I think that now I think the government agencies are treating them like they treat um, a criminal syndicate. And I think that's the approach they have to take. And, and I think Leah is the best thing that ever happened to the survivors of Scientology. And I think that she has, she has the smarts to take it all down. And I cannot wait for that day to happen. The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Produced and hosted by Carla Stevens Tolstoy. Co-production, editing and narration by Joel at East Coast Radio Creative. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. 
You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.